We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show where we talk with accomplished chess players, authors, and personalities about their lives, their careers, and how to improve at chess. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters and by Chessable.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have a guest this week who I have long wanted to interview. He is best known in the world as a novelist. He wrote the cult cycling classic, The Rider. He also wrote the book, which is known in English as The Vanishing. It was adapted into film, both in the U.S. and in the Netherlands, as separate films. He's also a journalist and a chess journalist. He's interviewed Kasparov. He's written for New in Chess magazine. He's rated in the 2200s FIDE. He was a top 20 player in the Netherlands who competed in two Dutch national chess championships. And in the early 2000s, he was a renowned chess blogger with a particular interest in chess endgame studies. He's also a cycling enthusiast, as his novel, The Rider, might suggest. And I am excited to speak with him. One quick note, we are doing this via Skype to phone. So I hope the sound quality is okay, but I think it will be worth it to hear from our guests. So without further ado, Tim Crabbe, thank you for joining us. Okay, I'm fine with that. <laughs> so Tim and I both got our second vaccines within the last few days. So Tim, you reported that you're feeling okay? I'm quite okay. Yeah, I, got my, I had my second shot uh, yesterday and uh, I didn't feel any side or after effects. So I'm, uh, I'm quite okay. Good. Well, congratulations. I know it's um, been a long time coming and um, hope that everyone listening either has been or is working on getting vaccinated so that we can get back to real life. Yeah. Um, so, so, Tim, I, I want to talk about your writing. I want to talk about cycling, even though I don't know much about it. And of course, I would like to talk about chess. But since you haven't been blogging yes. as, as actively in recent years, my, my first question was just, how into chess you are these days? Obviously, as we record, the candidates recently concluded. Um, do you still follow events yes. like that? Yes, I'm quite into chess these days. I follow all the, the internet tournaments, and of course, I follow the candidates' tournaments. Uh, 
uh, practically from day to day and glued to the screen when things uh, got really um, uh, tense. And um, it was a wonderful tournament, I think. <clears throat> it was very um, exciting to see my compatriot, uh, Geary, really be in contention for the first place, and it was a pity he didn't make it in the end. Yeah, he was so close. I would have enjoyed seeing him uh, take on Magnus as well. So when, you're, <clears throat> when you have your eyes glued to the screen, as you say, do you typically watch broadcasts or just let the moves unfold on their own? I just follow it. I, I never um, uh, switch to the comment commentator's channel because I, um, I I can't stand the noise really, <laughs> and they're laughing too much. I think I'm uh, just following the moves, and I look at the uh, computer analysis. And I must say, I, I quite like Geary, but I'm not a very chauvinistic guy uh, when it comes to chess. I I love chess itself more than I love my country. So. I was quite happy that uh, Nepal uh, won this tournament and will be the next challenger. I think he's a very interesting uh, player and he's also something, I don't know if you really know this word in English, an Ausgegner for Carlsen. He's, he's, um, he has a positive score against him. So I think of all the eight guys who played this tournament, he was the guy who might make it uh, the most difficult for, for Carlson in, in, their match, in their match later this year, I believe, in November. Yeah, that's right. It will be in November, yeah, and it will be an interesting clash of styles. Um, so what else are you doing in, t excuse me, in terms of chess these days, Tim? In, in your legendary blog, um, Chess Curiosities, which, by the way, Tim has an out-of-print amazing book by the same name, you, you often would talk about playing Blitz on ICC in those days. Um, are you still playing online blitz much, Tim? I'm not uh, writing chess uh, anymore these days, but um, I, I follow chess closely. I still get a lot of emails uh, that pertain to my uh, website and sometimes to my book with new examples of all kinds of things. But I do not uh, use them anymore. I just use them for my own pleasure, which I will uh, communicate to the people who sent them to me, so I'm not adding to that uh, anymore, but I still, as I said, I'm following all the important tournaments. I read a lot about chess. I read many chess sites every day, so I'm quite into chess a lot, and sometimes I play my stupid putzer games on <laughs> some of the chess servers. So, uh, but that's very, as, as you know, probably it's very addictive, so I try to cut uh, down on that. But Sometimes um, I do play for hours on end uh, on, on the internet, but it's been years since I played any serious chess. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure a lot of people listening would love to play, as you say, uh, stupid patzer games at your level. Uh, you beat uh, Donner in one of the, Grandmaster Donner in one of the Dutch championships, and of course you have tons of stories from playing legends and simuls and interviewing legends, and I'd, I'd like to get to all that stuff um, in, in due time. But... Um, so I'm curious, Tim, if you're getting all these submissions for stuff like the Babson task, which uh, listeners can, can look up, and these other sort of very erudite-type chess studies, um, what, what prevents you from dropping a post on the blog, which is still, still up for people to read once in a while? What do I do about the Babson task, you mean? I'm sorry, I didn't understand. <laughs> yeah, that. I'm sorry, I didn't phrase that very well. Why, why not write an occasional post uh, if you're still getting emails about this stuff? Well, you know, if I were two persons, one of them would be writing still a lot uh, about chess curiosities, but only one, and uh, I think I had really done my best. I've written everything that I thought was interesting, and I have other things in life to do, which uh, in the first place is writing novels. I'm working on a new novel now. So uh, I think um, I more or less put a stop to, to working on my chess curiosity site. Uh, every now and then I do a little something about it, but um, mainly I, I, I don't add to that anymore. But there are hundreds of stories there, so that should be enough for anyone interested in chess curiosities. Yes, the listeners, I definitely recommend you, you check it out and be prepared to get lost for, for many days in uh, the archive that Tim has, has accumulated. Now, Tim, um, we were put in touch by um, Tom Vanderbilt, the author of Beginners, who has been on the podcast. Thank you, Tom, for doing that. Um, and I read a feature that he wrote of you a few years back where you alluded to the fact that you've been working on a big novel. 
is that the project that you mentioned or do you have something else in the works now? Uh, I'm not sure. Um, a few years back I was working on a um, book that became an 800 page book about a very uh, famous murder case in, in, the, in Holland uh, where I got to know the guy who did that and his whole family very well. I followed them uh, intimately, you might say, for about 30 years. And it's um, really a chronicle about a family in hard times, you might say, and uh, also in bad times, of course. And that's what I published uh, two years ago now, and I'm working on a novel. Uh, I have been working on it for over a year now, and it's a rather um, ambitious and complicated work, so I'll be happy if it could come out in um, 2023. <laughs> okay. Let's not be overly optimistic. Good, yeah. And you're, but that's what I'm working on now. Great. And you're 78 years of age, is that right, Tim? I'm 78, yes. Okay. Yes. And, and but, Tom, Tom reported from cycling with you that you were in vigor, like quite vigorous still, very healthy. Uh, do you feel like you're holding up well and able to still work very hard? Uh, I do uh, quite a lot of riding, that's right. Uh, maybe uh, 250 or 300 kilometers a week, I think. Um, and um, I think it's a very healthy thing to do. So, of course, I'm not racing anymore, but I did race with a Masters uh, of 60 and over for almost 10 years. In my what I call my second uh, cycling career, starting when I was 62 or something, and I did that until I was almost 70. I don't do races, of course, uh, anymore now, but um, yeah, I still do a lot of long rides uh, too. Last week I did one of 150 kilometers, and uh, that went really well. Well, so I feel healthy, and I hope to be able to go on with that for many years to come. That's amazing to hear. That's uh, inspiring. And Tim, being we have a lot of listeners who are still working to get better at chess, whether they be in their 60s wh when you were, when you had your, your renaissance as a uh, bike racer or a bit younger. So uh, what advice would you have for, for staying strong at an endeavor like cycling? And uh, of course, uh, any applications we could apply to chess would also be welcome. I don't think there are very many similarities between uh, cycling or whatever and chess. Chess is just chess, but of course it helps to be in good shape and to be sharp. Uh, and um, I think uh, almost all of these guys nowadays do a lot of sports uh, to be uh, to be in, uh, in good shape, in good physical shape. Uh, for one thing, Carlson is a good example. He, he's very good at various uh, ball sports especially, and uh, the olden days when, when the chess world champions uh, were 40 to 50 years old and did not do uh, much physical training are over, I think. It's an important thing to stay in good shape, and um, yeah, it makes you think clearer, I think, but uh, <clears throat> there are not many similarities to chess and cycling. They just happen to be interesting sports, both of them, and if you are, um, if you feel, if you like sports, you might just accidentally happen on, onto both of them, but they don't have any, um, any common things, except for one thing, I always in cycling when I did races, I noticed that the massive sprints, the bunch of sprints, uh, made me feel a lot like time trouble in chess did. You have to make decisions uh, for which you have only a split second, and they are all decisive. Uh, so that the, the frenzy of a bunch sprint and the frenzy of time trouble are very comparable, I think. Oh, that, that's, that's interesting. I could totally see that. Now, I have to admit, I can barely ride a bike, Tim, but, but I did read The Rider. I, I enjoyed it because I, I enjoy glimpses into subcultures, and I know that you've You've mentioned uh, in the interview with Tom that that's you try to be faithful to sort of um, the the micro world. You're not trying to make like grand illusions. You're just trying to present this little world um, as it is. And I, I really appreciated that. And you you say that there's not that many similarities between uh, chess and cycling. But one line that struck me was um, you, you mentioned that cyclists always say that the best part of cycling is the suffering. Um, and I think there's an element of that in slow tournament chess as well. 
Uh, well, there is a lot of suffering in chess as well. I mean, when you realize that you have made a blunder or you have played a bad move, and, and just after you made it, you see how bad it is, and uh, you think of the, the better move that you could have made, that's some sort of suffering, uh, you might say. And, you know, in cycling, uh, the, the concept of suffering is something very popular. Uh, it makes us heroes, you know. We, we can uh, tell we were suffering such a lot. But at the same time, um, uh, every rider and I think every endurance sportsman knows that as soon as you cross the finish line, the suffering turns into uh, a remembrance of, of pleasure. It's, um, it's paradoxical. The suffering is pleasure in, in a way. And also, when you, when you talk about uh, suffering in cycling, I noticed that for a short while I did both sports at a certain level. I noticed that after a serious chess game, which could take five to seven hours, I was much more tired than I was after a cycling race. After a cycling race, I felt tired, of course, a bit, but in a different way, in a fresher way than after a hard game of chess. So that's the physical aspect of chess, which is maybe often underestimated. Uh, there is a comparison there between chess and between all sports. You suffer because it costs you energy and um, that's not different in chess. It's of course, it's, it's very often not seen as a real sport by many people, which is okay with me, but it's a physical, uh, physical uh, thing to do, chess. Yeah, that's an amazing insight. I, I, of course, am not a scientist, but maybe it's something to do with the fact that you have the mental release of this energy, but there's no physical release. So holding that in might be more exhausting than even something as grueling as a, a cycling race. Not every cycling race is that grueling. I mean, I think uh, writers uh, and writers about it propagate the idea that, that it's very grueling. But in a, in a professional race, let's say of 200 kilometers, um, it will be not be so very hard for at least 150 kilometers. They just ride in a bunch, and uh, it's it's uh, quite easy uh, to follow at times. Of course, in in, in the last uh, two hour or two hours, then it becomes really grueling. But uh, chess is also grueling. You 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 really get very tired, and I can also compare this to writing. After a full day of writing, I'm also very tired in a different way from um, tiredness after uh, cycling. Hmm. And it's more similar to chess? Uh, writing is similar to chess. Uh, I mean, the brain works uh, in, 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 um, in, a, in a top function, you might say. Uh, it, thinking is hard. Thinking spends a lot of energy, and you, you really, it really makes you tired. If, really, if you're really thinking hard, whether it's on chess or on writing, it doesn't make that much difference. Interesting. Well, Tim, we've got a few more questions from listeners of the podcast related to the intersection of cycling and chess. It turns out we've got some uh, cycling yes. enthusiasts listening. So first, I'm going to get to those in a second, but first I'd like to take a break and hear from our sponsors, Chessable.com. This is your weekly reminder that Chessable.com has a ton of high-quality material. Whether you're looking to learn a certain opening, want to see the latest Super GM repertoire that has been published, want to find a tactics course appropriate for your level, whatever it may be, go to Chessable.com and have a look around. Don't forget they have tons of cool free content too, like their short and sweet courses about various openings. And all of the things that they offer feature their proprietary move trainer technology, the secret sauce that lets you actually remember all of the new chess moves and opening sequences that you learn. So once again, chessable.com, check out their ever-expanding excellent library. And we are back. So Tim, the first question is from a friend, of the, friend and supporter of the podcast, Dima Spivak. Thanks for the support, Dima. Um, now, Dima, you already touched on this answer, but he goes a little deeper because he's talking about professional cyclists. So I'll just read Dima's question, which is, besides you, of course, there are some other famous examples of top-level cyclists who also play chess, Mark Cavendish being the first to come to mind. What is it about these two activities that makes them appealing to the same types of people? So I know you've said that you don't think it's necessarily the case, but have you noticed this amongst top-level cyclists? 
No, I don't know. Uh, I don't know any top-level cyclists who really play chess. I, I didn't know, in fact, uh, I must confess that Cavendish uh, played chess, uh, but I don't think at a very high level, or I would have known. Uh, in my uh, surroundings, there were a few guys who were decent uh, riders and also decent chess players, but at top levels, uh, I mean, there there are, anyway, there are not many examples of... Um, great chess players who were also great sportsmen. One example, of course, it's not with cycling, but with uh, football, is Simon Agdestein, the of Norwegian uh, great yeah. master. He, uh, yeah, you, you know that he was uh, among the 20 best chess players in the world, and at the same time he played in the Norwegian uh, national soccer team. So uh, he's the outstanding example of that. And I don't know of any cyclists or cycle racers who were um, top racers and also top chess players. It hasn't happened. Yeah, I was aware, of course, of Simon Agustin, uh, his achievements as a top footballer, and then uh, becoming Magnus's trainer subsequently. But it was interesting, reading through your blog archive in preparation for this interview, that you've been tracking this story for decades. Um, you, you, know, you had him sending you notes in like the late 90s, so that, that was pretty cool to see. Yeah, well, I... I, I uh... One time um, I interviewed Einstein about this and uh, he was always considering whether he stopped, should stop with one career or with the other and uh, in the end he was in a way you might say helped by the fact that he got a, an, an injury which prevented him from, from going on with his uh, football career. So, uh, and then uh, he was not really the ultimate top in chess as well and he became a trainer. And he was the first real serious trainer of Carlson, of course. Yeah, um, and of course, I'm sure it doesn't hurt that chess is uh, booming in Norway, um, and I believe he still runs the same chess school that that Magnus attended as a um, a youngster. Um, so yes, well, uh, I think uh, yeah. Now, actually, Agustin was the first chess grandmaster in Norway. Yeah. Yeah, so an amazing legacy and and incredible to reach that level in uh, such different pursuits. Um, and the next, the next listener question is from Alan Sue. Um, Alan asks, he says, what have you learned from chess that help you develop and maintain your cycling ability and fitness and vice versa? Um. I have a very disappointing answer. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know. There, as I said, there are no, um, no transfers there. there. There are transfers in similar sports. Let's say cyclists uh, very often skate and they row and sometimes they run and there, uh, of course, there are transfers in strengths. In chess, you have uh, go and maybe bridge and checkers and people who excel at chess could also excel at those things and might even um, profit from um, their expertise in one, one of those other games. But between physical sports and uh, mind sports, I don't think there's any transfer in, in knowledge or expertise. Well, Tim, what about the fact that you just, you became really good at, at three different things? Um, that's something that not a lot of people can say. Some people don't become as, as, as an accomplished a novelist as you are, a top 20 chess player in your country, and an accomplished cyclist as well. So they're, they're, even if it's not... Um, direct there must be something well, <clears throat> that you've learned about getting good at things i'm very sorry but i don't know the the fact that you um, um say that i'm a, a competent chess player and i'm only a writer and a chess player as far as i have written about it I'm, uh, foremost i'm just a writer and i've written about many things that interest me in life among which are cycling and uh, chess playing but uh, as a chess player, I've meant absolutely nothing um, in a broader sense. And also as a cyclist, I've also meant nothing. I mean, um, in cycling, perhaps I was once among the 200 best in Holland. In chess, for a short while, I was among the 20 best. But um, that's only known. Uh, you're only doing this interview with me because I wrote about those uh, things. Um, that And... Uh, I, I get, I, I get again, what you're again, saying. <laughs> it's a fair point. I'm just yeah, saying yeah, okay. most people don't reach the top 20 it's, it's, of anything. It's 
too easy to see any similarities or or um, whatever between chess and cycling. They're just, I mean, if you have the personality that likes silly games, <laughs> then you might take up as a cycling as well as chess. What is chess? You shove around wooden puppets, and uh, but it, in the end, you might win. And to be attracted by winning is what uh, all sports have in common, of course. And and then it depends on on which sport you you meet in your life, uh, and that's uh, just a matter of uh, of sheer luck, of course. But I, I don't have any real talent in uh, in chess or in cycling. But I hope I have some real talent in writing. Well, your your reputation speaks for itself, um, and I, I get your point. I get what you're saying, but uh, <laughs> but uh, I still think um, you you sell yourself short in chess now. In an old interview, Tim, you mentioned that when you were in your 20s, you, you knew that you loved chess, but you felt like you just weren't going to be quite good enough to pursue it professionally. Um, could you, uh, could you ex- expand upon that a bit? Tell us about what went into that decision. Well, I remember uh, one thing very clearly. Uh, when I was 14, I was madly in love with chess. I was dreaming about becoming world champion, and I did not know much about yet about uh, the history or the, the, the practice of chess. And then um, a, a member of our family uh, who knew I was playing chess gave me a clipping from a newspaper, and in it, it said that a boy who was exactly my age, named Bobby Fischer, had become uh, champion of the United States. <laughs> and I, at that same time, I was struggling to become champion of my school. And that was the moment that I thought that maybe there was a difference between me and people <laughs> who had real talent. I was really trying to become champion of school and, and uh, failing at it as well. And Bobby Fischer was champion of the United States. So there it was. That guy had talent and I did not really have that kind of talent. Let's put it that way. So Fischer, a- uh, who is just a few weeks, who was a few weeks older than me, was my um, uh, uh, was some sort of a marker for me that made it clear to me that um, I wasn't uh, I hadn't the makings of a world champion in me. Well, that's good perspective for a fourteen-year-old. Um, so, Tim, you speaking of Fisher, you attended uh, the match of the century, correct? I do what? Say it again, please. Did you go to the Fisher Spassky match in Reykjavik? Yes, yes, yes. I was there as a journalist, and um, I even spoke to Fischer on the night he was crowned as a world champion. Um, I'm not a great small talker, and it was only small talk, but I remember he was sitting at a long table. If you've ever seen pictures of that night, uh, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, a girl I knew, an Icelandic girl, had, had managed to come up to him, which was maybe uh, a little bit easier for a girl than, than for me. And when she saw me standing somewhere around her, she beckoned me, uh, come over. So what I could do, I mean, all the tables were guarded by guards. It was impossible to approach features. But I dove under those tables and I crawled all along the, the, the hall where this uh, ceremony was. And I reached Fisher and this girl and uh, uh, I took a chair next to him. And then this girl said, oh, hello, Bobby. This is Tim. He also plays chess. <laughs> that's great and then we exchange uh, a few words so I can say uh, that I did speak to Bobby Fischer on the night he uh, on the night at the Banquet where his um, world championship was celebrated of course that match was absolutely exciting because of his uh, strength and his odd behavior yeah so before we get back to the match did did Fischer seem interested in the girl uh, I think Fisher was always interested in girls, uh, and uh, of course, uh, the, the the fact that she had managed to come over to him <laughs> means that he was interested in girls. There are interesting, nice pictures of Fisher that night dancing, even with an Icelandic girl. Not that girl I'm talking about, but uh, another girl who who was there. Fisher was uh, in his own way and uh, a woman's man, I think. Yeah, I know that Barbara Streisand has said that she had a crush on him when they went to high school together. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, 
Not sure. I'm not. Are you sure about the curse? I know they they went both to Erasmus College or Erasmus High School in Brooklyn, but I don't know about the curse. I, I'm not even sure that they knew each other at school. But they both went there, and I think they're about they were about the same age. Yeah. Um, so tell us more about that match, Tim. Um, was it just like throngs of people everywhere? Um, and um, like, what was the day to day life like at that match? What it was be to be there? Uh, it was the center of the chess world. It was the it was going to be evidently the most famous chess match ever played uh, between an eccentric and a very nice gentleman from Russia. Um, and it started with 2-0 for Spassky, as you know, because Fischer didn't show up for the second game, and he played very strangely in the first game, about which I have a theory, which is probably incorrect, but um, chess players will remember that Fischer buried his own bishop on each H2. Yeah, in, uh, famous, yeah. Um, in that game, and the, the bishop couldn't, it was a very odd thing to play, and that uh, happened on the 29th move, and 20, Fischer was 29 years old at that time, and I, maybe a little bit too Freudian, saw it as some sort of a suicide. He played for, for a loss, really. Uh, it was an incomprehensible move on the 29th move. So he, he committed suicide at 29, you might say, chessically. And, uh, and then he didn't show up for the second game, and everybody thought it's, it's over. Uh, I remember people were absolutely... Uh, I remember talking to Olafsson there, who was the strongest Icelandic player at the time. And nobody thought he would come back, and of course it was, had been very difficult uh, already to get him there. And uh, it was a miracle that he, for, for some reason, uh, showed up for the third game. And then uh, the rest is history. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, just amazing to hear you talk about it. And what Tim is referring to is, uh, for any listeners not familiar, if you look up game one of the 1972 Fischer-Spassky World Championship, Fischer played this very famous blunder where he took a pawn on H2 and allowed his bishop to be trapped and to this day, people debate what, like, what it was that he missed. Um, there, there might have been one move, four moves down the line that he missed that didn't allow the bishop to get out, or it might have just been a bigger brain fart, or it could have been the, uh, the superstitious pow- forces at work that, that Tim refers to. But in any event, it's, uh, it's great, Tim, to, to hear your, your stories from being there. Um, so, Tim, we've got one yeah, more... Well. Sorry. You still um, there? Yeah, I am. Sorry. I just wasn't yeah. sure if you had something to add. But uh, we have one more cycling question before we get back to chess, although it's also related to chess. Um, sure. So this one is from Patreon subscriber Aryan Duvapov. Um, Aryan asks, he says, how important do you think physical exercise is for our chess skills? I know you've mentioned this at the elite level. Research says regular exercise changes the brain to improve memory and thinking skills. Do you think amateur chess players should get on the bike? Not especially on the bike, but it's been proven, I guess, that physical exercise is very good for chess players uh, to be in top shape. And I don't think that cycling is, uh, is not a very economic sport if you do it to get in shape, because um, it's, it's a sitting sport, actually. That It has that in common with chess. In chess, you sit at the board. In, in cycling, you sit on the saddle. If you want to build up uh, a good sh- physical shape, you could better go running, I think. It's, um, it's, uh, in an hour, you will spend more energy than you will uh, on a bike in two or three hours. So if you want to do it economically, go and run. Okay, yeah, and that's what you did when you came back to cycling in your 60s, right? You started out by jogging? Exactly, exactly. I wanted to take up, uh, I, I was at least 30 kilos overweight and I wanted to start cycling again. And I thought the most economical way to build up some semblance of a shape was to go running, which I did for half a year or something. Um, and only then I started cycling again. Cycling is a, a quite different sport from running. Running is harder. Um, measured uh, in, 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 in the same amount of time, of course. In, in an hour of running brings you more than uh, two hours of cycling. And Tim, as someone who's relying on, on your brain to earn a living and tell your stories, 
um, into your late seventies and uh, someone who's still barely, very physically active. Are you watching what you eat as well and eat and drink, or are you more focused on the physical training? I'm just curious. No, I'm just, just taking it easy. I'm not following any regime. I'm just eating what I like. It's on the healthy side, I must say, but, uh, it's, um, I don't um, um, eat too many sweets these days. That's the only thing that I changed when I came back to physical sports. Uh, I, I drink a normal amount of alcohol, uh, which is one or two glasses a day, uh, but just because I don't like to drink any, any more than that. Uh, I'm, I'm not following any special regimen, which I also didn't when I was still a competitive uh, racer. I'm, I'm not interested in diets, etc. Yeah, good to hear because <laughs> I'm really and it, not. And it seems it seems I don't need them as well. So I, I'm keeping at a reasonable weight uh, last ten or twenty years. So, uh, but I weighed uh, uh, I think twenty years ago 110 kilos or something, and now I'm around 80, which wow. is better. Yeah, amazing. Um, good stuff. Well, Tim, yeah. I want to hear some more chess stories, but first we're going to take one more break to hear from our friends at aimchess.com. Not every chess player has a janitor to help them improve at chess like Beth Harmon did. For those of you who don't, there is aimchess.com. Aimchess has a web-based algorithm that collects and analyzes your games from chess.com or LeeChess, and then it creates personalized study plans based on your weaknesses to help you improve. It might highlight specific openings to work on, tell you to tighten up your tactics, or in my case, tell me to manage my time better. Then it gives you puzzles and advice with the goal of helping you improve your chess faster. You can check out Aim Chess for free. And then if you decide to subscribe, please use the promo code CHESS30 to save 30%. That's CHESS30. The details are also in the show notes. So for now, let's get back to the interview. So, Tim, you've got so many amazing stories on your blog. Uh, playing Karpov in a blindfold, Simul, you tell a great story. Um, involving playing Anand in a simul at the same time that you're getting romantically involved with a girl. Um, when and <laughs> meeting, meeting a young a woman, I should say, meeting a young uh, Jan Timmen um, as he bursts onto the Dutch chess scene. So when you look back on all that you've seen in chess, what are, what are your most treasured memories, Tim? Oh, uh, uh, that's hard to say, a treasured memory, but... Maybe, maybe it's my visit to uh, Leonid Jarosh in Kazan in uh, Tatarstan, uh, the, the guy who uh, finally managed to compose the baton task. But uh, of course, that's not um, about chess as a uh, as a uh, contest. It's uh, not about chess tournaments. But this baton task, which you mentioned before here, uh, was a, a sort of a, was a problem. That um, was very hard to compose, and uh, which the greats in the world uh, had tried to compose, and nobody uh, managed. And then suddenly there was a totally unknown uh, guy from uh, Kazan who had managed it uh, in, in a beautiful way. I wrote a book about that, the man who wanted to make the Batson task. And meeting this guy, who was a very unassuming, sweet, and, and nice uh, guy in Kazan, was one of the highlights of my chess life. Wow, that, that is not the answer I expected, although I know that, that you love the endgame study. So for listeners, uh, you can look up a Babson task. Tim has written about it um, at length, and he's, it's a story he's tracked over many years. But it is a composed endgame position, or a composed position, rather, that has certain stipulations, that white makes the only move that forces checkmate in a certain number of moves, that black's defense includes the promotion of a pawn to either a knight, bishop, rook, or queen, so under promotion. And if black promotes, then white must promote to the same piece that black just promoted to. Exactly, um, exactly, yes. Just, just, uh, well, so... Well, that was very... Go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say it's, it's, you know, chess, as, a, as you've sort of alluded to, chess to begin with is an abstraction, and then... To, to devote as many hours to the Babson task as you and your followers and your compatriots have um, is like an abstraction on top of an abstraction. It's just, uh, I, love, I love the uh, dedication. 
Well, for me, it's the Babson task is uh, some sort of a, uh, yeah, you might say a hallmark of, of the creative uh, mind. Because you want to create something that's very hard to create and you, you give years and years and years of your life to it, not being sure even if you will manage to create this. The Babson task is not only about Jaroche who, who did it, but also about the Frenchman a certain Pierre Drumard who tried to compose this elusive problem, uh, as he says, for 22 long years at four hours a day, he tried to achieve this fantastic position, and he did uh, not. Um, he did not make it. He did not uh, realize his dream. And then there comes this uh, unknown uh, football trainer, which Yarosh wins, and he 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 does it in. Uh, well, he just does it. <clears throat> huh. That's amazing. Wow. 22 years for four hours a day. That, that's crazy. Yeah, that's, yeah, I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my uh, efforts to compose the Betson task, my elusive efforts to compose the Betson task, that's what he titled his uh, serial about that in a French uh, problem magazine. And are you still, so you say you keep up with... Uh, top-level competitive chess, are you still keeping up with sort of, uh, you say people still email you, but are you still solving endgame studies and doing difficult work like that? Do I still keep up with, with problems and studies, you said? Yes. Yeah, yeah I follow, I, follow uh, I mean, on the chess sites that I follow, um, there will be interesting problems and studies from time to time, uh, and uh, I look at them. And uh, so, I important things that happen in the chess study and the chess problems world. Uh, I, I also uh, follow. Yes. So, which sites do you do you like to keep up with? Which chess sites? I always look at. Uh, I think it's uh, oh well, the chess base uh, site and the chess vibes uh, site. They have. Uh, uh, well, actually, chess base will publish one of my old studies in some of the weeks to come. I think uh, study about uh, what what I call the rambling rook. I'm not sure that you know what I mean. It's a rook that can keep on giving check uh, uh, until eternity uh, and can never be captured because then it would be stalemate. Right, yeah, I love those. Uh, it was a phenomenon in, in uh, you know what I mean. Yeah. It was a phenomenon in chess, what happens a lot in games, but also in studies, which interested me a lot. Uh, and I've more or less worked out a theory about it. Uh, uh, and um, that resulted in one study which ChessBase will... Uh, publish again in one of their coming uh, issues. Excellent. I'll, I'll look forward to that. And Tim, obviously you've done your fair share of reading about chess and chess learning and of course chess history. What are some of your favorite chess books? Um, I might say, well, my favorite chess book is, I might say, one that I made myself. I collected together with a friend the writings of uh, Hein Donner. The Dutch Grandmaster, it's, um, uh, in Dutch it was called The Koning, which was translated into English as The King. Yeah. And The King is really, I think, uh, the best chess book ever written. It's um, worth the trouble to learn Dutch to be able to, learn, to read it in uh, Dutch, I think. But um, there is a translation, of course. The Donner was um, uh, a good grandmaster and a great writer which uh, he understood chess, uh, but he was a really, really uh, literary writer, you might say. He should be admired for, for his style and his wit, etc., etc. The things that you have, uh, that you admire real great writers uh, for. So The King is my favorite chess book. Yeah, absolute legend, legendary book. And uh, I know that a biography, I haven't had a chance to read it, but a biography of Donner came out in the past few years, Tim. I know that you knew him personally, but yes. have, did you get a chance to read that as well? I haven't read it. No, I must say I, I didn't read it, but I know so much about him already that I was not uh, immediately tempted uh, to, uh, to read it. If I may mention it, another chess book that I really like very much is one about... Uh, Tal, Mikhail Tal, the life and games of Mikhail Tal. Tal was my favorite chess player of all time. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. Just so I mean, of course, I have some guesses, but what is it about Tall that that you love? He he was he was uh, crazily entertaining in his games. He dared to do everything. He was the first fully undogmatic player. Uh, he was, let's say, he came up. He, he became good in the time when dogma you might say, uh, range in chess. And Tal wasn't interested in dogma. He saw chess, he was the first who saw chess as a game of chance, which in fact it really is. Of course, chance based on knowledge and based on capabilities, but he created um, difficult situations for him and for um, his opponent. It didn't really matter to him who was, um, in a higher sense, better in a position. What interested him in him was that it was an entertaining position and that it was difficult. And he was, uh, those were the, the sorts of positions that he was better in than the other guy. And uh, he, he was, um, uh, he dared everything on the chessboard. So he was, uh, well, he's not for, not just uh, for nothing that he's called the magician. Uh, he, he was a magician on the chessboard. Well, that was a very poetic description. Um, yeah, and spot on, of course. Um, so do you think a style like that would still work today in the engine age, Tim? I'm not sure. I don't know that much about chess, but there are a lot of players these days who are also very creative. I'm thinking of Mamajaro, for instance. I'm thinking of Dubov and also occasionally Carlson. Um I think, well, that's also the influence of the computer, of course. The computer has shown many uh, new possibilities in the strategy of, of chess and, uh, and also have variations in the openings uh, that were not thought to be playable at all, turn out to be playable after all. You can see it in the games, for instance, by Maxime Vachet-Lagrave, uh, who plays things in the poison point, variation that were not uh, uh, were not possible just uh, 10 years or 20 years ago so I think um, the creative side of chess is not uh, not demolished by the computers it's helped by the computers I'm glad to hear you say that um, and of course Tim in this past year to year and a half during uh, quarantine time there's been a big push with more competitive events online with elite players playing do, do those hold your interest, and what do you think about the possible future of chess as sort of an e-sport, as they call it? Well, chess, the internet chess is very interesting and very nice to follow, uh, but of course it's um, um, to, to shorten the games, make them more interesting, but also more uh, superficial. Um, I'm, I'm afraid that uh, classic chess... Uh, has a very hard time, will have a very hard time to survive. And I think that maybe in the end, uh, Fisher Random Chess will be a solution to that because uh, these guys um, uh, play over tens of thousands of games and uh, one remark in the postmortems about games that you often see, often see is that I forgot my analysis. I looked at this position and I know that I have a winning line here or something, but I forgot the lines. They can't remember everything that they analyze, and um, and the best thing would be to throw all opening theory overboard and play Fisher random chess or something like that, where uh, where there is no opening theory. Opening theory is bad for chess. Yeah, when I interviewed your friend Grandmaster Jan Timman, he so he said um, or he confirmed that if if he were coming up today, he doesn't think he would be a chess professional because the the amount of opening theory required to be known is just overwhelming. Absolutely. It's, uh, um, there's too much to learn these days. And uh, they, they, they already have to learn so much about strategy generally in the middle game, etc. But that applies also to the positions you will get, to, you will get with uh, a random. So uh, my guess is that, let's say, 30 or 50 years from now, um, uh, classic chess will be more or less dead, and Fischer or whatever random chess will be more played than um, classical chess.
That's interesting. And Tim, of course, chess has also seen a huge boom, not just at the elite level, but a broad-based surge in popularity uh, with the combination of the uh, people being at home and looking for new activities and, of course, Queen's Gambit. Um, As someone who lived through the Fisher boom and saw it firsthand, how do you compare these booms? Do you think that chess is going to be able to maintain the popularity this time around? Uh, chess will certainly maintain its popularity. It's a, it's a great game. It gives people pleasure. It has many um, uh, sides that that appeal to uh, to the feeling of beauty that people have, uh, also in problems and studies, of course, but certainly also in games. Chess is uh, getting bigger and bigger all the time, and it will not. Uh, I don't see it ever really going down. It's a a great pastime and a great art, and um, it's the best game there is, I think. Yeah, I agree, but it's it's great to hear you say that. And Tim, your your book, The Rider, um, so beloved by cyclists, um, a cult classic. Uh, Did you ever consider? And uh, I I read that you mentioned in an interview you consider it. uh, You know, it's based on life, but it's a novel. Did you ever consider doing something similar for, for chess, related to chess? Uh, in fact, I have done something like that for chess, which is a, a long, short story, which you can find on my, web, find on my website. It's called Master Jacobson. It's uh, not as well known as the writer is, but I think it's just as good. So if people want to know what I can say in fiction uh, about chess, then they should read my story, Master Jacobson, on my site. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to check that out. I, I, that one escaped me. Um, and Tim, I, that's my last sort of line of questioning, I would guess. Um, obviously, you've become, um, you've had quite a lot of success with your books um, in touching on, you know, whether it be the writer, which represents a sort of uh, microculture, or just telling stories, as you do in The Vanishing and some of your other works. Um, what advice do you have yes. for cultivating the skill of storytelling? Oh, I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm just writing. My, my main maxim is that I want to write things that I'd like to read myself. Uh, I write for myself, in fact. I have no public in my mind at all. I just recently uh, wrote something that was not even meant for publishing, which was just for me and my girlfriend, uh, but to which I applied all the craft that I have just as well as for things that I write for publishing. It's, you know, the, the, uh, the urge to create something. That's the first thing that you need. And publishing and making money from it are seconds and thirds. Uh, so, but now I'm working on a, on a new uh, novel um, to which I apply uh, all my craft, and, but that is for publishing. Uh, but that's publishing, making money are not the first things. You have to... to feel this urge to create something worthwhile and there uh, a good comparison is again with chess uh, composing chess problems has exactly the same you make no money from it there's a very very limited public for it you just make them uh, out of the urge to make something that works that lives that breathes wow yeah yeah that's that's amazing perspective um and but of course like most writers, I know that you've read your fair share of fiction. Um, do you do you have favorite writers that that you maybe model yourself after or just uh, look up to? Uh, what I look up to are the, the great uh, the great nineteenth century Russians. Hmm. They uh, they all wrote in uh, in you could even say a prosaic prosaic style. They did not. They did not show off in their style. They had good stories to tell, and they they. If you read them now, they are completely modern. Their novels have not aged, and many other writers that you might perhaps admire um, have written things that have aged. And you can sometimes read contemporaries that you see uh, that <laughs> from which you see that they will uh, age within a few years. But the great Russians, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Turgenev, etc., etc. They are really eternal writers. Their books are just as modern as they were 150 years ago. And as a professional writer, I like 
I studied Russian in college and took Russian literature course, so I read my share of those books and greatly enjoyed them, but I I never went back to them. But as a professional writer, do you reread them and deconstruct them the way you would in, like, analyzing a chess game, or are you able to just read, take something from it, and go to the next book? Oh, no, I just read, read as an amateur reader, you know. I read for pleasure. I do not read to learn anything from uh, from books if that's what you mean I um, I read for pleasure yes uh, I'm not uh, not trying to copy or anything or um, I, I don't look up to these guys because they uh, I can learn things from them I look up to them because they're fantastically uh, entertaining excellent that's a good perspective okay Tim well this has been a thrill I I just want to hear one more chess story before we go, um, if you don't mind. I'd love to hear the story of your walk with Kasparov that you've written about on your Chess Curiosities ah. blog. Yeah. It was very strange. It was in, the, in a tournament in Amsterdam in 95, and he had missed a move. Again, I was already talking about that. Against Piquet, he had forgotten a move that he had analyzed. And for some reason, he wanted to show it to me. I, I was, of course, then the official tournament book writer, and he he just went up to me and said, "Do you are you interesting? Interested if knight a four? I think if that move is in my computer." I said, "Yes, of course." Well, then come with me, and we walked uh, through Amsterdam uh, to his hotel, and he was while I was looking, he showed me all the secret variations perhaps being sure that I could not remember them at all. <laughs> these, uh, these were really very costly secrets that he showed me, and he was just to show me that this move that he had forgotten was in his computer, but he couldn't find it in, in that computer. And then the, the, uh, <laughs> the meeting was over. I, I could go. <laughs> but that was a very strange thing because I, I, he, he knew me already, and he uh, did not like me very much because I had once written a very bad review about one of his books, uh, but still he wanted to make it known to the world that he had only missed this move that he should have played, and then he would have beaten Piquet, but now he had lost to Piquet. <laughs> that, that, that's an amazing story. Um, very, yeah. very strange behavior. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you've got to be wired differently to reach that level of, uh, of the chess hierarchy. Um, probably to be that good at anything. Um, so, so Tim, I don't know if you have any other stories you'd like to share before you go, but this has been uh, an absolute pleasure. That's okay. Okay. Oh, you you were asking if I if I have any more stories to share? Yes. I can tell you a little one if you want. Uh, well, I was amazed one uh, once by Jan Timman. Uh, I know Jan Timman simply uh, in, in, in circles that I move in, and one time I uh, mentioned to him that we had played six games, six official games, when he was in his teens and I was in my 20s, and that three of them he had won and the other three were draws. And I, I described five of those six games, and I couldn't remember the sixth one, and he immediately knew that sixth game, and he told me what it had been about, etc., etc. Uh, that was amazing to me because for him that game had been completely unimportant. Of course, for me it had been an important game uh, because I was playing against a future world-class player and he had been playing against the Potter. But he remembered that game, move for move, move to move. That was amazing to me. That showed me how grandmasters remember and how grandmasters uh, think. Yeah, yeah, just amazing. Um... And Tim, the sound has gotten a little faint, but um, so I'm not sure if that'll show up on the recording. But in any event, um, th- I just wanted to thank you for all your contributions to chess. You're very modest about them, but uh, but there's so many chess curiosities fans out there that will that will love to hear uh, your stories and and your thoughts about the chess world. Okay, thank you. Thank you for letting me talk to you. My pleasure. And people can still email you through Chess Curiosities, right? Through the blog? Oh, that site will still be there. I'm not taking it down or anything. I'm just not adding to it, but all those stories are still there to read, and most of them are in English. Excellent. Thanks so much, Tim. Thank you. 
Thanks, as always, to my producer, Matthew Passy. Thanks to you all for listening. And thanks to those of you who help spread the word, whether it be positive reviews on podcast platforms, telling friends, social media, all that stuff helps get the word out and it is much appreciated. By the way, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Official one You can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group to continue the conversation, sometimes even with that week's guests. The Perpetual Chess Instagram page is back in action as well at Perpetual Chess. And you can also find all these links on the Perpetual Chess webpage, perpetualchesspod.com. But of course, the main purpose of these closing credits is to thank everyone who supports Perpetual Chess financially. Without you all, we would not be able to put out such a consistent and hopefully quality product. So thanks so much. It really means the world to me. And in particular, I would like to give thanks to the following people and entities, starting off with my friends at chessable.com. Aside from that, I would like to thank David Lazarus of lasmanchess.com. He is the coach of Dave's Young Tigers on Lee Chess, our friends at Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, the Abysmal Depths of Chess blog, Adapta Interactive Web Designs and Services, the Apprentice Twitch channel, A Needy Deer, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porto, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, the Charlotte Chess Center, the Chess Central's Chess blog, chessmood.com, Chris Flanagan, Chris Lott, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel He, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, I am Dimitri Schneider, I am Eric Rosen, Eric Tam, Ewan Richardson, Farhan Thawar, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Glenn Downing, Greg Harfst, Greg Shahadi, Gregory Gullick, Guvin Manet, James Holyhead, James Kennedy, Jeff Martinson, Jens Green, Jeremy Nielsen, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John MacArthur, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan, King Selt, the King's Crusher YouTube channel, one of the original chess YouTube channels, Lucio Casada Silva, the law offices of Stuart Katz, Matthew Feeney, Michael Can, FM Michael Oblin, Mike Zelazny, Mr. Mike Shahadi, the legendary Mr. Dodgy, the Nerd Nays Twitch channel, GM Peter Prohaska, Peter Sodhi, the Playmore Chess Academy of the Hamden Chess Club, Reuven Fisher, Reverend Roy Fry, the Seattle Chess Club, Shane Unger, Stefan Kelty, Stephen Martinez, Sven Gearson, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryant of Strong Chess, Todd Kennedy, the Vintage Patsers, which is a chess.com improver group. You can look them up. Wayne Bean, William Hogarth, and I also would like to thank Aaron Waffler, Ace Viega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Al Hastings, Alan and Maggie Sue, Alex Pejas, Alexander Markovics, Antonio Cancino, FM Andre Tarakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Angus McLeod, Barry Hessian, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Bill Trammell, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Chase, Brian Mullis, Bruce Scott, Brian Tillis of Palm Beach Chess, Cameron Davis, Chad Hilton, Chess Potzer Spain, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, also known as Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Corey Butson, Costa Carras, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Bleskacek, David Brown, David Hamblin, David Cramley, Dalen Shelton, Dennis Parrish, Dirk Decker, FM Donnie Ariel, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ed Mead, Emmanuel Langual, Robitai, Ethan Smith, Hallelujah Cat, Ian Mason, Fide Arbiter, Arbiter, Arbiter excuse me, Felipe Melo Perdera, Fox Valley Chess Club, Francis Letart Lavoie, Frank Tor- Dr. Frank Tortoris, Frank Zanani, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Gautam Narula, Geert Vandervelde, Gene Stewart, George Harris, Giovanni Russo, Han Schut, Harish Srinivasan, Howard Vihan, Jacob Kovac, Jason Apollo, Jason Murray, Jacques Pari, James Aspinwall, James Benastia, James Muir, Jason Woolham, Jadeep Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Hoyland, Jerry Wells, Jesse Dacumos, Jesse McNulty, Jim Ratliff, Joe DeSano, Joe Valdez, 
Joel Thomas Ramos, John Tooley, Juan Almaguar, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman of U.S. Chess, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Slater, John Quist, John Tully, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, GM Josh Friedel, IM Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, Kevin Pryor, IM Kostya Kovyutsky of the Chess Dojo, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Cook, Larry Ryforth, Laura Belyovsky, Macaulay Peterson, Mark Fitzpatrick, Mark Miller, Mark Wilkins, Marco Bulatovich, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matthew Passy, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, Matthias Plock, Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Gobel, Nate Solon, Neil Bruce, Nigmat Malijanov, Nicholas Isabel, Olaf Mueller Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Queenside Management Limited in Switzerland, Randy Temple, Ricky Grahava, Richard Hallenbach, Richard Tucker, Robert Callahan, Robert Titi, Robert Turner, Rory Coleman, Rory Yearwood, Ryan Berg, the Say Chess YouTube channel, Scott McKinnon, Scott Shepard, Sean Krause, Sebastian Finsterwater, Walter, Sergey Magacon, Seth Ruzicka, Shane Unger, Silver Knights in Richmond, Stefan Roller, WGM Tatia Vabrahamian, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, FM Timothy Wall, Tom Edsel, Tomas Komanich, Tony Rattel, Tyron Price, Vishnu Srikumar, William Brock, William Peterson, FM Zhao Chang of Chess1000.com, and last but never least, Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we will catch you all next week. Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.